So as I said, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. And you might remember if you have been here through our uh, series in Isaiah that in chapters um, 1 through 5, we have had Isaiah that has brought a charge against, the, against God's children, against the nation of, uh, of Israel and specifically for Isaiah here against the nation of Judah, the, the southern tribes. But they were all his children. And the charges against them both were the same, no matter whether you're talking to Israel or whether you're talking to Judah. But as we read through this book, you'll notice that primarily Isaiah is speaking toward Judah and the southern tribes. But he brought a charge against them that they had forsaken him. That basically they had turned their back on him. They had gone through a time of uh, great prosperity. If you have your outline, I, I have this written down for you. But they had gone through a time of great prosperity as we're going to see when we get into Isaiah 6 this morning. But they had had many years of, uh, of blessing from God in the land. And they had had um, plenty of rain, plenty of crop. They hadn't experienced any famine. They, uh, they hadn't experienced any drought. They had had a, a good leader who expanded their borders. And God had just blessed and blessed and blessed. But along the way, the blessing of God began to replace them seeking God themselves. And they began to, to think that the reason they were blessed was because of the king that was on the throne. In this time, it would have been a king named Uzziah. And he was a good king for the most part. He, he grew in pride as he got older and as God blessed him and gave him accomplishments. But he was a good king. And they began looking at these leaders and the, and the people that were in place of leadership. And they began to, um, to put their trust in them. And instead of seeking God daily, you know, one of the things that um, uh, Jesus taught us to pray every day is that, is that, Lord, give us this day our what? Our daily bread. And so we are, are supposed to be relying on God daily for everything that we need. And unfortunately, I think all of us in here can probably relate to this. Because we are such a blessed people and because God has been so good to us, how many of us go day after day after day and never seek God for our daily bread? We just assume that it's going to be there. I mean, we've got jobs. We can provide for ourselves. We've had good leaders in place. And we've got a military that protects us. And we've got police that protect um, the communities and our children. And, um, and so as long as all of those things are in place, then the truth of the matter is, I don't really need to seek God. Now, you may not come out and say that, but is that not what we're doing whenever we get up every day and we don't seek Him for our daily bread, we don't seek Him for our children's safety and for our jobs that they would be there and be able to provide for us? Instead of looking toward God and worshiping Him for all that He has done and all that He is, what do we do? We quit worshiping Him. We still go through our motions and our routines. And if you've been with me and through this study, you'll realize that that's exactly what Judah was doing. They were still going to church. They were still going to the temple. They were still giving their sacrifices. They were still raising their hands in worship. They were still praying. But the fact of the matter was, it was all motions. There was no realness in their heart to understand that, God, we need You. Every moment of every day, God, we need You. God, if you don't give us our very next breath, we don't take it. God, if you don't give us our next meal, we don't eat. God, if you don't provide rain, we don't have crops. 
There are so many things that we need God for on a daily basis, and yet we forsake Him when we turn away from Him. And this is the charge that God has brought against His children in Isaiah chapter 1 through chapter 5. They had forgotten Him, and they had turned their back on Him. And just to show you a few of these things, look at a few verses with me. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 17 through 22, look at what we, what we have here. God tells them the haughtiness of man. And the reason they were haughty and proud was because they weren't looking to Him. They were trusting in themselves and their own abilities and the work of their own hands. He said the haughtiness of man is going to be humbled. And the lofty pride of men is going to be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. All right. And all the idols that you have turned to and all the things that you put your trust and gave your worship to, they are utterly going to pass away. And the people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. In other words, a day of judgment is coming for our sin, right? And then he says, in that day, mankind is going to cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship. And they're going to give them to the moles and to the bats. You know why? Because what are they worth now? Nothing. They're not worth anything now. And he says here that, I'm sorry, is that the right verse? To enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. And finally, look at verse 22. Here's how you know what the problem was. So stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? So do you see the problem here? You see what's happening? And is this really any different than what we do today? As I said last week, I'm not trying to get on politics, but how many of us honestly believe that if we can just get Trump back in the office, everything's going to be okay? Are you kidding me? Do you really believe that Trump is able to do anything other than what God allows him to do? Now, do we know that God can raise up good leaders and God can use them? Absolutely. And He does, just like he, we're going to see with Uzziah here in a minute. But the problem was, is that we get into a place of such a blessing that we quit looking to God, we quit seeking God daily, we quit truly worshiping Him for who He is to us and what He has done for us, and we just go through our motions. Can I get an amen from that? That's what we do. And let me tell you something. If you're not included in that today, raise your hand. That's us. That's us. That's what we do. Look with another scripture. Isaiah 31, verse 1 through 3. This is another thing our culture has moved to. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. In other words, God's judgment was coming against them through a terrible Assyrian army. And instead of them turning to God, you know what they did? They started shaking hands with foreigners and saying, we need your help. And they teamed up and they ran down to the Egyptians and they relied on them because they have horses, they have chariots, they are many and in horsemen they are very strong and they do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. So again, an enemy is coming against them and what do they do? They start looking for worldly powers. They start looking for worldly protection. And the truth of the matter is, unless the Lord God protects you, there is no protection. Amen? Alright? And then, go with me to the next verse. And yet He is wise, God is, and He brings disaster. 
He does not call back His words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. Now, the last verse. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out His hand, the helper will stumble. In other words, Egypt is going to stumble. And he who is helped is going to fall, and they will all perish together. The helper, their leaders, the people, their blessings, their idols, everything, it will all perish together. And then one last verse, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 9 through 13. Look what this says. For they are a rebellious people. They're lying children. Children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. They were coming week after week hearing what the Lord had to say. But did they repent? No. Much like many of us. They say to the seers or to the prophets, don't see those things. And they say to the prophets, Do not prophesy to us what is right, but instead speak to us smooth things. How many of you know that people today try to find churches and preachers that are going to make them feel good, right? We want to walk away from church and, and know that, that we've been encouraged. And, know that, and I'm not saying that there shouldn't be encouragement in it, but it shouldn't be in our sin, Right? And so he says here, they say to us, don't prophesy what's right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions if you're going to talk to us. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. And so here again, here's what you've got. People that are forsaking God, they're looking to everything else in the world except God for everything they need daily. They are going through the motions, but they don't want to hear the truth of God. They don't want to be corrected. They don't want to turn away from their sin. They are lying children, rebellious children, and they want to remain exactly where they are, and they want God to be okay with it. Sound familiar? That's the problem, and that is a major problem. And so today, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, he gets a vision from the Lord, or a vision of the Lord, I should say. And it makes him realize that all these things he's been preaching about, he's been preaching one through five, all these things, and then all of a sudden, Isaiah's going to see God in such a way that he says, uh-oh, I'm the same way. <laughs> uh-oh, I'm no different than all these people I'm preaching to. And it changes Isaiah. He is never the same after he sees God in the way that he sees Him in this vision. And so my hope today, here's my goal, is that you and I can see this same vision that Isaiah saw and that we can come back to the Lord that just the way Isaiah does here, that we can seek Him for, for, for forgiveness and that we can confess our sin and repent of our sin and turn back with a new desire to honor Him the way that He truly deserves, to seek Him on a daily basis for everything we need, to understand that if He doesn't give us whatever it is that we need, we're not going to have it. We depend on Him for everything. And that is the goal. I hope that we will be able to come back to Him, serve Him the way that He deserves, and give Him our best. So here's the outline. If you've got an outline, I think they were handing them out. I forgot to text Nathan and told him that I sent it to him, and so that's the reason why we were late getting it out. But um, and it, if you didn't get one, it may also be on our Facebook page. Nathan usually does a good job at getting it on there too. So if you go to Wells Baptist Facebook page, you can see what we're doing. But the outline goes like this. Verse 1 of Isaiah 6 
Isaiah sees God's sovereignty. This is what he sees in the vision. He sees God's sovereignty. In uh, verse 2, Isaiah sees God's majesty, His overwhelming greatness. In verses 2 through 4, Isaiah sees God's holiness, that He is set apart from everything else that has ever been created. Verse 5 through 7 is God's mercy that Isaiah sees. And then verses 8 through 13, you get to see God's commission. God's commission to Isaiah. So let's go through this. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. The first thing that God shows Isaiah in this vision is that even though the king that Isaiah loved and trusted in, even though this king is no longer alive. Because notice he said here, this is the vision he got in the year that King Uzziah died. Well, if you were to go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 26, you learn a little bit about this king. King Uzziah, as I told you, was a good king. He reigned for 52 years. And for 52 years, he saw the nation of Judah expand so that his fame reached all the way down to Egypt, to all the surrounding borders. He reclaimed all the land that the Philistines had took from him. Basically, here's what happened. Uzziah restored the kingdom of Judah back to its original glory in the days of King David and King Solomon. They haven't seen it like this in years. And yet, Uzziah brings it back to its splendor. Really, who was it that did it? God. Now Uzziah was seeking God. He was a good leader. He was going after God. And God blessed him. And God blessed Israel. The Bible tells us in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 that he fortified the city walls, he built towers, and he invented machines to shoot arrows and throw great stones. Think about that. You ever watch them movies where you have these towers with them catapults that sling these great stones? 2 Chronicles chapter 26 tells us it may not have been the same thing, but... Uzziah had people invent towers that threw stones like that. So really I believe that this takes us back to where these machines came from. And they were a great defense for Israel. He put them out in the farmer's fields to protect the herds of the people and to protect his own herds. Uh, He had towers out there with archers and bows so that they could protect from any incoming enemies. And he fortified their city to the point that for 52 years they lived in great prosperity and things were good. But what do you think happens when Uzziah dies and now their leader is gone? If they're putting all their trust in their leaders and they're looking to him, what is the the thought of the nation right now? Uh Uh-oh. Oh no. We've had it so good for so long. And Isaiah apparently has the same thing. Because notice, God shows Isaiah this vision in the year that King Uzziah dies. And so he sees here, notice what happens in verse verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. In other words, here's what God showed him. Isaiah saw the Lord. Now one of the things you need to know is that when you see the word Lord in the Bible, 
most of your modern translations today, including the King James Version, will actually sometimes put Lord in all capital letters. Sometimes Lord will be with a capital L and the rest lowercase letters. Because those are two different words in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, one of those words, when we have Lord in all caps, is Yahweh, which is the proper name of God. The name that God gave Moses when Moses said, Who do I tell the people that you are? Who do I tell the people that, that you are, that this God that sent me to you, to you, who are you? And God said, here's what you tell them. You tell them that I am. In other words, you tell them that I am the self-existing one. You tell them that I have no beginning and that I have no end. You tell them that I am the creator of everything that exists. If it exists, you know where it gets its existence? From the I am. And so he says here that he saw the Lord, not Yahweh, but capital L, lowercase o-r-d. So what is this word? This word is the word Adonai. And it is the word that means the supreme ruler, the sovereign master. Literally, it is a word that means that he has full control over everything that takes place. You remember what Jesus said about his sovereignty in Luke, uh, I think it was chapter... 12 maybe, I can't remember exactly, but he said, not a sparrow falls from the sky apart from what? Apart from the will of God. And he said, you are worth more than many sparrows. In other words, there is nothing that happens. And I know this is hard for us to believe, and I can't teach a lesson on the sovereignty of God today, but just take my word for it from the Word of God. Not a sparrow falls from the sky apart from the will of God. He truly is a sovereign ruler. And just because this great leader that you think has brought you prosperity for so long has fallen, you need to understand something. The Lord, the Supreme One, the One who is in control of all things, is still sitting on His throne. Just because God has saw fit to raise up an immature uh, President Biden for us today, and again, I'm not trying to get on politics, I'm just calling it like it is. Y'all want me to, to speak to you what you want to hear? You want me to tell you the truth? Alright? So just because God has put that one on the stand, you don't need to look at it and say, Oh Lord, we are ruined. <laughs> Even though we feel that way, I get it. But that is not the way that we should be. Why? Because the Lord is sitting on His throne. And everything is exactly as He sees it should be. Do you all understand that? And this should bring you comfort if you belong to Him. If you belong to Him, this should bring you comfort to know that even if this is God disciplining us as a nation, you know what, so be it. Sometimes we need discipline, don't we? And even if this is God judging the nation, so be it. You know what? The nation needs to be judged. No matter what, one thing we know for certain, the Lord is sitting on His throne. He always has been and He always will be. He is the sovereign Lord. 
And this is something that we should look at from Isaiah's vision and we should take comfort in this. The truth of the matter is, this is the honor that God gave to Jesus because of His sacrifice. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 through 11. Philippians 2, verse 8 through 11. And Jesus being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now because of this, look what He does. Therefore, because Jesus did this, therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. In other words, He's given Him a name of complete control, sovereign authority, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And then look at this. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Look it up in your Bible. Same word, Adonai. Actually, in the Greek, it's the same as the Hebrew. The Hebrew word is Adonai. The Greek word is kurios. Same word. The only difference is different languages. And so what we see here is that Jesus is the supreme ruler. Jesus is the one on the throne. And Jesus is the one who is in absolute control right now. And He is the one that you and I should look to day after day after day saying, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Lord, protect our children. Lord, bless us in our families. Lord, give us our next breath. Lord, keep looking to us and make Your face shine upon us and be gracious to us, Lord. He is the one. Go with me to another scripture right here in uh, John chapter 12, verse 40 through 41. Notice what Jesus said about this scripture in Isaiah. Because this is where we're in the same scripture, Isaiah 6, All right, He has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn and I would heal them. And then look at what Jesus said about it. Isaiah said these things because he saw what? His glory and spoke of... Him. He saw the glory of Adonai, the supreme ruler. He saw the glory of Jesus and He spoke of Him. And then one more scripture. Go with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 34 through 36. For David did not ascend into the heavens. Here he's talking about the ascension of Jesus. But he said, he himself, David says this, The Lord said, notice, the Lord said to my Lord, and if you go back to a modern translation or your translations, and I think that is Psalm 110. That's Psalm 110. You'll actually see Yahweh said to Adonai, sit at my right hand. Alright, now go to verse 35. Until I make your enemies your footstool. And look at verse 36. Here's the point. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus both Adonai, or Kyrios, depending on which language you're reading it in, and made Him Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, this Jesus whom you crucified. What am I trying to get across? No matter what is going on in this world, no matter who the leaders are or who they're not, no matter what you have on your table to eat or you don't have, no matter how much your job provides for you or it don't, one thing is for certain. Jesus Christ is the supreme sovereign one who sits on the throne and there is nothing that is outside of His control. There is nothing that is outside of His will that does not take place. 
And every day He is the one that we should be seeking and we should be trusting in to know that even when the King dies and is no longer on the throne, the King of kings is on His throne. Isaiah needed to see a vision of God on His throne so that he could understand that their trust in Uzziah or anyone else was stupid, was sinful. And when, as Isaiah sees these things, he comes to a conclusion here in a little while. He says, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am lost. Because he realizes just exactly who it is that he has neglected the turn to and who it is that he has actually put his trust in. And it is stupid. It is foolish. So Isaiah sees God's sovereignty. Now, verse 2. Isaiah sees God's majesty. i got to hurry up. <laughs> i got a party to get to. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I wanted to get through it, but I may have to just cut it off and we'll finish it next week. We'll see how far we get. But verse 2, Isaiah sees the majesty of God. Actually in verse 1 and 2. Notice he sees the Lord sitting on a throne, but He is high and lifted up. And the train of His robe filled the temple. Now one of the things you need to remember is this. Majesty is overwhelming greatness. Whenever people would talk about something being majestic, they would talk about the mountain peaks are majestic. What are they saying? They are overwhelmingly great. They're so great to look upon that the only way I can describe it and get the emotion out that I feel from what I see is by saying they are majestic. They are just overwhelmingly great. Or sometimes the Bible speaks of the the mighty ocean waves, the waves of the sea being majestic. And it means that they are just overwhelmingly great. Anything that you would look at, and it would be overwhelming to you in the greatness that you get from it, that means majesty. And so Isaiah looks and he sees the throne of God, and it is not just a throne like any king, he's saying this throne is high and this throne is lifted up. It is above every other throne that has ever been and ever will be. There is no throne like this throne that he sees and he sees majesty. Next Isaiah describes his robe and specifically his train of his robe. Now listen, in the days of royalty, and we don't understand royalty today, But in the days of royalty, um, a king or a queen would um, show their splendor and they would display their, their glory by the apparel that they wore. And so honestly, if the apparel was purple or red or it was white or it had a flowing robe that went far behind it, it displayed the splendor and the majesty and the greatness of this royalty. I remember... Um, I watched it several months ago. I was watching a, a coronations of different kings and queens on YouTube, and I saw Queen Elizabeth's coronation. And her train that drug behind her, I think it took six people to hold that train. Now they were spaced way out, but it's six people went behind her holding this train as she went down to, I guess it was um, downtown Abbey or wherever it was, but she was making her way to her coronation. And so, um, did I say that wrong? Everybody's laughing. I'm not a, I don't know anything about England or royalty anyway, so 
But, um, but as she's making her way down through there, I remember seeing that train flowing behind her, and it was just, um, it, it was just full of splendor. It was full of beauty. And these are the kind of things that royalty did so that it displayed the greatness of who they were and specifically of the position that they held. And so whenever we see here in this vision, we see that this king sitting on this throne not only has a robe, but the train of his robe fills the temple. In other words, if the splendor and the majesty of this apparel that he wears fills the temple. Then how great is this king that wears this robe? Are y'all tracking with me? And so Isaiah looks and he sees a majestic king. He don't just see a sovereign king, he sees a majestic king. And so he sees the majesty of it. Verse 2 through 4, we see God's holiness. Look what he says next. He says, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And so there what we see, Isaiah describes these angels, and I I don't want you to make the mistake of trying to see Cupid here, a little chubby guy flying with his little bitty wings, and he's got his bow and his arrow. Get that image out of your head. No, these are seraphim. These are what the Bible calls burning ones. They are literally consumed by fire. And they have wings and they are standing above the throne that is high and lifted up. Only in physical appearance, not in actually being above as in being higher. Y'all know that. But the fact of the matter is this. We have these massive, perfect, sinless beings. They are... They, they are just, when, when men look upon them, they quake at the appearance of angels like this. Six wings, and with two they cover their face. They're sinless, they're perfect. Yet, even in their perfection, they still can't look on the glory of God. They're still humbled by it. They have two wings that they cover their feet in a sense of humility. And then with two, they fly. And the whole time they're doing this, they cry out to one another and they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now you would expect them to say, I think, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of His holiness. But that's not what they say. They say the whole earth is full of His glory. Why do they do that? Well, because here's what it means to be holy. Holy means to be set apart from everything and everyone. You remember whenever um, Moses was standing in front of the burning bush and before uh, God told him, He said, Moses, take your shoes off because you're standing on holy ground. What was it that made that ground any more holy than the ground right down the mountain? The fact that the Lord had set that apart for His purpose, for His use, alright? God is set apart from everything and everyone, even sinless, perfect, angelic beings, beautiful creations. 
And yet, He is so far set apart from them that all they can do is look at Him and not say that He is holy. Not say that He is holy, holy. But instead, they look at Him and they say, You are holy, holy, holy. You are so far removed from everything else that there is, that there is nothing that can compare to you. They see the holiness of God. And when they look at creation, they see the glory of God. So what's the difference in holiness and glory? Well again, holiness is being completely set apart. There's nothing like it. God has set it apart. Glory, on the other hand, is when His holiness is put on display. So we get to see how far set apart He is by looking at all of creation. The angels look and they see the mountains and the Grand Canyon and the ocean and the sun and the moon and the stars and human life and animals and plants and trees and oxygen and carbon dioxide and blood and, and cells and, and they look at all of creation. And the angels look at it and they say, Oh my goodness, He is so holy and He has filled this place with His glory that puts who He is on display. When you look at creation, have you ever seen anybody like this holy God? And what is the answer to that? No. He is holy. And we have these angels that are perfect and sinless. And again, they don't, they've never had any sin in their life, and yet they see just by looking at creation the holiness of God. What's our excuse? And this is what Romans chapter 1 tells us. I don't remember if I gave you that verse or not, Riley. Uh, Romans chapter 1, I think it's verse 19 and 20. It says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In other words, if you want to see the holiness of God, it's clearly seen. All you have to do is open your eyes. You know what our problem is? We look at all this stuff every day and we wake up and we think this is all normal. I'm sitting on a giant blue ball right now circling around it. I don't remember how many thousands of miles an hour. And I wake up every day riding this giant blue ball at a thousand miles an hour going, ah, oh, it's just a normal day. Right? We look at all of this. We get up and see a giant ball of fire in the sky shining down and giving us warmth and keeping us alive and making things grow. And we look at it every day and go, oh, it's just normal. Everybody's got a giant fireball in the sky. I mean, this is what we do. We breathe in oxygen and breathe out carbon dioxide so the plants can live. They breathe out oxygen so that you and I can live. And we wake up every day and look at it and go, well, it's just normal. It's just the way it is. There ain't nothing normal about this creation we live in. It is the display of God's holiness. It is His glory. And yet you and I are not able to see it. What's the problem? We need a fresh view of God. Amen. See, here's the problem with us today. Our view of God is way too little. Way too little. 
We need a view of God that understands that this is the sovereign King that is majestic in all of His ways. This is a holy King. There is none like Him. There is nothing that can compare to Him. And this is our King. And these perfect sinless beings look back and forth at Him and they cry to one another and they say, Holy, holy, holy. Listen, let me tell you, the problem is this. Because our view of God is so small, it affects our worship. You know why we don't come in here and sing along with the song this morning that says how great there are and we are having our eyes bowed and our hands raised and we are proclaiming with crying. Notice the way that these angels are calling out. In verse 4 it actually says that from the voice of their cry, what happened to the foundations of the threshold? The problem with you and I is that we do not have the right view of God. And because of that, our worship is pitiful. Because of that, our prayer life is pitiful. We don't see Him as the sovereign, ruling, king over all. And because of that, we don't seek Him. We don't pray to Him. You know, I think about Job. Now, yes, God allowed Job to go through some trying times. But the Bible tells us that Job would get up in the morning and he would build his altar and he would make his sacrifices and he would come to God every morning and he would ask forgiveness for the sins of his kids just in case they had done something that might anger God. In other words, he recognized day after day that God, we need your provision God, we need your protection. Job had a high view of God. He had a right view of God. And because of that, his worship was on point. Because of that, his prayer life was on point. Because of that, the Bible actually says that he was blameless in all of his ways. And again, did God let him go through suffering? Yeah, he did. But in his sovereign will, it was a good thing. He knew exactly what he needed. We need a right view of God, guys. God is not our little buddy that's alongside of us getting ready to drink a beer with us. Is God our friend? Yes. But don't get that twisted. He's still God. He's still God. And so we need a right view of God. If we don't get God out of this little image that we have, we are going to continue to go through our motions of coming in here, singing our songs, praying our little simple prayers, and there ain't no real truth behind it. Our prayers are just repeated things that we've learned how to pray. Lord, lead, guard, guide, direct us, bring us back next point of time. Christ's name pray. I ain't trying to get on you if you pray that way, but you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. We get in these routines to where they don't really have any meaning to them. They're not literally that we're pleading with this sovereign ruler that God, if you don't do this for us, if you don't provide for us, God, we have no hope. I'm going to end right here. I promised my wife and my mother-in-law that I was going to quit early today. I'm going to keep my promise. I guess my question to you before I, before I end this morning, how do you see God? 
Do you see Him in such a way that He is sovereign and He is the only sovereign and that unless no matter who's on the throne, God, I don't care if Biden's on the throne, I don't care if Trump's on the throne, I don't care if you bring Ronald Reagan back. (laughs) I went there. I don't care if you bring Ronald Reagan back. At the end of the day, if the sovereign king doesn't do it, we don't have it. We trust you and you alone. If you don't see God as majestic and overwhelmingly great, you're going to treat Him and worship Him in such a way that your worship is going to be puny and tiny. It ain't going to shake nothing. Your prayers are going to be puny and they're not going to move any mountains. But if you get the right view of God, everything about you is going to change. And we'll see that next week. We're going to see Isaiah's change and how Isaiah changed whenever he sees the right view of God. Y'all would stand with you this morning. We're going to have a time of response. Um, you can uh, respond to God. And remember, in our prayer, I prayed, God, this is your word. You speak to us. You tell us what. If God spoke to you this morning, now is your time to respond back to Him. You can do it right there from where you're sitting. Uh, the Bible tells us if we humble ourselves, God will lift us up. That's the reason sometimes we come to the altar and we get on our knees and we pray. If that's something you would like to do, that's up to you. But now is your time to respond to God and what He has said to you in some way. Maybe you just need to say, God, forgive me for where I see you is too little. I don't know. But whatever it is that you need to do to respond, now is your time for that. So come and receive whatever it is that you need.